Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The words of Torah that we are studying this morning is Parshat Sav, which is Leviticus chapter 7. Uh, we're in the second triennial reading, so we begin at chapter 7, verse 11 uh, this morning. Let's start at 7-11. This is the ritual of the sacrifice of well-being that one may offer to Adonai. One who offers it for thanksgiving shall offer, together with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, uh, unleavened cakes with oil mixed in, unleavened wafers with oil, the cakes of choice flour with oil mixed in, well-soaked. This offering with cakes of leavened bread added shall be offered along with one's thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being. Out of this, the person shall offer one of each kind as a gift to Adonai. It shall go to the priest who dashes the blood of the offering of well-being, and the flesh of the thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being shall be eaten on the day that it is offered. None of it shall be set aside until morning. If, if, however, the sacrifice (laughs) is offered as a votive, or a free will offering. It shall be eaten on the day that, it, that one offers the sacrifice, and what is left of it shall be eaten on the morrow. What is then left of the flesh of the sacrifice shall be consumed in fire on the third day. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of well-being is eaten on the third day, it shall not be acceptable. It shall not count for the one who offered it. It is an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it shall bear the guilt. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> right? So we're getting the description of, as we talked about last week, when we looked at what kinds of uh, sacrifices we have. This is the Torah, the teaching of the Zevach HaShlamim, the sacrifice of Shlamim. When do we give a Shlamim? Under what circumstances? When we uh, come back from an overseas journey or we um, travel through the desert, or we um, overcome life-threatening illness. Interesting. Um, sure. But what, why do we, what are these occasions? Why do we give a shlamim? We're happy. Things are good. A gratitude. Things are good. It's gratitude, right? You're talking about when we bench Gomel, right? When we, when we escape from danger, when we feel like we've you know, done something dangerous and have escaped, we bench Gomel. We're called to Torah for an Aliyah and we bench Gomel. We bless God who has brought us through uh, and delivered us uh, from danger or harm. So the Shlamim is given whenever things are good. Why is it called Shlamim? What did I tell you last time? Shlamim? Wholeness. So wholeness, probably the root, but, w- but when do we use sh- wholeness as Shalom and all that good stuff. We use it in a greeting. This is the greeting offering, right? Which I think is a better term than <coughs> well-being offering. So shlamim is about saying shalom to God. It's about greeting God. It's, you are bringing a gift to greet God and to be in relationship. What did we call a sacrifice? Didn't we hate that word? What do we use instead? To draw near, the drawing near thing. So this gift is the draw near to God thing that you're offering, right? And so we, the shlamim comes just when you want to be closer, just when something good happens or you just have this sense of wanting to be close. Nothing's wrong, nothing happened um, that's bad. You might have been given by um, a prestigious university uh, the Distinguished Emerita Award, for example. Rita Efros. <laughs> Somebody been lifted up by the peers to be singled out for recognition of the excellence of her work. Because people like to tattle to the rabbi when good things happen. I'm just saying. So if one got such an award, one might bring a shlamim. Where's your shlamim? Yeah. yeah. 
So just to celebrate, just to, to be... When one has something good happen, one doesn't want to keep it to oneself. Except Rita. Yes, your colleagues will always tell on you. I'm just going to tell you that right now. So, um, so we don't want to keep it to ourselves. We want to share, don't we? When we feel like a real sense of abundance, we want to share. And so the instinct here, and the Torah, so the Torah is anticipating this instinct that when something good happens to me, I want to share that with the source of life, right? Who's in whom all of it unfolds. Yes? I want to come closer to the heart of the mystery. The mystery is the heart of reality. And, and so that's a very human, wonderful impulse is to want to share. This is why gratitude is such an important practice. It's why it's such a, an important spiritual practice. Because when we are feeling grateful, we always want to share. So when we can stay in gratitude, what happens? Everybody benefits because when I feel like I have more than enough, my instinct is to want other people to know that feeling. I want other people to have. And so I'm much more likely to give than when I feel um, stingy because there's not enough to go around, right? And it's a um, zero-sum game. If I give you some, if I give something to Richard, I lose somehow. Um, which is why I don't like the word sacrifice so much. Because it's the opposite kind of. You know, like we talked about last week, it's, a, it's, it's opposite of that. This feeling of sacrifice means I give something up in order to propitiate God or, you know, whatever. And really, it's, it's really very much hayafach, the, the opposite. Is that I give something because I feel a sense of abundance and I want to share that. And when I feel my cup overflows, then my instinct is to share, is to give. And that's what the Shlomim is about. And and we're going to get giving that's not out of the Shlomim. We're going to give one that's a chatat, right? That's a sin offering. But again, it's about, I messed up, but I know that there has been given to me a way to give even out of that in order to come closer and to repair the relationship, right? When you have a relationship where you trust the other person enough to say, look, I was really snippy this morning. I am really sorry. You did not deserve that. I'm having a really hard day. I'm really sorry, right? When you love someone and trust them, you can, bless you, you can say, I'm sorry, because you know they are give, you know that they will give you a way out Always, They will always look, if they love you and you trust them, you trust that you can say, I'm sorry, and own what you've done because you know, bless you, that they're going to give you forgiveness. They are going to want you to come close again. They're going to want the relationship to be repaired, right? We, we, don't, we have a really hard time saying, I'm sorry, when we don't trust that, right? That, that it's going to be safe. And what does not safe mean? It means I lose face. Yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed. Right. I'm going to experience some kind of shame. And who wants to go there? Nobody wants to go there, right? But when you're loved and seen and held by the beloved in a certain way, you know you can own what's happened. And that's the system that's set up for Israelites. That's the system. God says, I am always ready to forgive. Always. So you do your part. Right? And again, this is unintentional sin. Right? If you realize you've messed up, you've made a mistake, okay, don't panic. Here's the instructions. It's okay. Here's the prescription. Right? For, for how to come close again and how to fix it, how to make it better, how to repair it. So rather than focusing on the sin part, which is what so many people do, right? That, oh my God, you know, they sinned and so they had to bring blood and they had to bring an animal. It's like they were gonna, they could only eat meat if it was sacrificed. And so they're given an instruction manual that says, when you catch yourself having messed up, here's what you do, including the priests. Including the high priest, right? The system is for everybody because everybody is fallible. So rather than be an element of constantly criticizing us as human beings, this manual comes to be assurance 
that it's it's going to be okay. You're human. God says, I get that. I get what that's going to mean. <laughs> that's going to mean some pretty gnarly stuff sometimes. And it's okay. I'm giving you before before you even get to the land of Israel, before you were, I'm giving you the system to make sure our relationship is whole and we can come close. So in Catholicism, I don't know that well, but I hear that if you sin, you go to confession and then they give you a system. They go say all these prayers and you're going to be okay. Similar or? Definitely. Definitely. It's, I think it is in the anthropology, we call it terrestrial human culture. THC stands for anything that is universal okay. that you find in any culture. And I believe a part of THC, a part of terrestrial human culture, is this desire to be absolved. Not, ju- not just with people, that we have to do it with people. I mean, our system that, that comes out of here later, the rabbinic system, the rabbinic Judaism, says you have to go to the person, right, and, and fix it with the person. But there's a, there's a longing, a human longing, I think, to stitch up the tear that we make in reality, when we sin, when we do icky things, like we, we we put a little tear right in reality, and and I think there's this just human desire to stitch that up and to feel like I, like your soul's okay, like I'm good now, like you know because I've messed up, I've I've punctured something that was whole, right, and um and we want to make that right. And I think that's a longing throughout every human culture. Um, how it gets expressed and how it gets dealt with depends on the culture and its origins and how it evolves. Right? So rabbinic Judaism evolved from, in part, in part, um, biblical Israelite religion. And, and Catholicism, um, same thing. I think it's that same longing to, yes, I can say to the other person, I'm sorry, and I can get forgiven, and our relationship can be fixed, but what do I do with that other level? That I've, I've put something out there that's now ickifying. <laughs> all, all my technical jargon coming up. Um, the, the broader space, yeah. broader reality. How, how do I clean that up? And every religion needs, oh, I think. So otherwise, you just live in shame. That's exactly right. It collects, yeah. and then you feel like I'm not, I'm not good enough anymore for whatever. Fill in the blank, right? right? And um, and so every religion needs a way to make that better, and and have people feel like, okay, I've done my part in cleaning the broader space of my own participation in pickiness. Mara, did I see your hand up? Did I see your hand up? No. Is there anything you'd like to say? Okay. We love it. You were just being being helpful. So what you've explained is very beautiful. And what I would like to understand is, is this your interpretation then of what we've just read? That's, so that's it. That, so does everybody? Are you saying it didn't sound related to what we did? <laughs> <laughs> it, it does sound related. Of course it does. But what I want to know, but what what interests me is, is this how how most people interpret this? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I never. Well, because because what's another interpretation that you've heard? Well, I haven't heard any others. I mean, usually you read this and they talk about the sacrifice and everything, and, and no one talks about the meaning behind it. Right. And so that's what I'm. I mean, this is the first time I've heard heard this. That's why we're here. Job security. Right. That's what that's about. Two, two things. I think the difference between the Catholic method of seeking that uh, that forgiveness. Having to go through a person, actually a priest and Jesus, to get mm. to the source is quite a distinction from the way we do it. Mm-hmm. And also, I was thinking when someone dies, you wear the little tear yeah. of black fabric or fabric on your clothes. That's a tear that you don't you don't look for absolution, but it's acknowledging the tear in the fabric of life. Yeah, yeah. which is still a beautiful ritual. And originally, it was our clothing. When yes. you heard of the death of someone close to you, one of the seven, you tore your clothing and you wore that clothing for the period of mourning to indicate to everybody that you were that something had been torn and your reality that can't ever be put back together. It's still a beautiful, really beautiful ritual. Uh, right, that's exactly right. Um, in very traditional Judaism, they still um, do that. Um, 
I think, Susan, I think we have a complicated relationship with this whole system in some ways. Like, there's parts of it we idealize, the menorah, the, like, I don't know, you know, there's parts of it we idealize. Other parts of it make us go, we, like, it makes us nervous. Like, we're, we're a little ashamed of it, maybe. It's, like, so barbaric. It's so old, you know, and it's just not how we think as Jews anymore. Sacrifice is really not a part, right, of our symbology. Um, it's sort of like, like, let's say, and I'm not a gambler, but let's say I've heard that people, they go to Vegas, they win a big, and then they give the dealer some money. It's almost like similar, I think, to what you're saying. So for, the share. For, the for the shlami. For the shlami. For shlami. Right, for shlami. So I think we have a, I think we don't talk about it much, and when we do, we have a little discomfort with it. We're not proud of it, I don't think. But I think, I think it's because of our modern, Sensibility, which Maurice Harris challenges in his book Leviticus, you have no idea. Um, he, he challenged. I should have brought it. I almost brought it. I was that close to bringing it um, today. I, maybe I'll go get it. But so where's your slow shame? Uh, right. Um, he says we look at it and go ew. You know th- this whole yeah. business. We kind of go Bleh. like it's a bunch of blood and it's a bunch of killing and why would God demand that? And it's a kind of a silly God who wants that and who smells the reach nichoach, the wonderful aroma, like it's all a little embarrassing for Jews, I think um, and so we don't deal with this a lot we, we, we're, we were glad to leave it you, you know what I mean, like when the temple was destroyed and we moved on, it got, ma- it got maintained in Catholicism oh. the temple ritual got maintained in yes. Catholicism sacrifice? 100% <laughs> Who's the sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus. The Lamb of God. Every church. Absolutely. The Passover Seder is all about the blood of the Lamb. And so look at the labor, look at the washing. All of it gets all of that gets maintained in Christianity. So this is what something we also forget a lot is that Judaism doesn't come from here. I mean it's it's not an evolution from this. Judaism gets born when the temple's destroyed. Right? It doesn't evolve from here. Some of it does, but rabbinic Judaism didn't, was not a natural evolution from this. It was already happening. Right? So we have the temple. So we have the temple going on, right? And then in Babylonia, we have the rabbis. Can't see that color. Uh, can't see. <laughs> um, so you have the temple and you have the rabbis. They're, they're at the same time. This is happening at the same time. And the rabbis have a very complicated relationship to the temple, right? They, they also are uncomfortable with some of this business. And you can tell I'm, I'm not terribly excited to get back to the text because I'm talking about. Um, but, don't worry, we're not missing anything. So. They have a complicated relationship to this, kind of like we do, right? And and where do we see this? Where does this show up really clearly in Scripture? The prophets. The prophets, particularly Isaiah, that we read on Yom Kippur, says what, essentially? Keep your sacrifices. Keep your sacrifices. And do the good, you know, follow the law. Because you're going to sacrifice to me and call yourselves good when you're allowing the poor to start. Really? You think I want those kinds of sacrifices? Break the bonds of slavery, of poverty. This is what I want, not your flipping meat. I want you to treat each other the way our Torah says you're supposed to treat each other. You're supposed to build a society based on these values, and you're blowing it. Don't give me your stupid sacrifices. Keep them. Right? Go to shul? Fine. But what do you do after you leave shul? How do you behave the rest of the... Right? So you come to services, though, terrific. Keep your hats. Keep your fancy clothes. Stay home. And get tzedakah. Right? So whatever. Right? Fill in the blank. So that's where the rabbis are. The rabbis are direct inheritors of the prophets in some ways. They have a very complicated relationship to the temple and to... 
The priesthood. Who are the authorities in the temple? The priests. How do you get to be a priest? You're born one. Well, when you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, oftentimes... You don't have to do much work. You don't have to do much work. And you're disconnected from the suffering and the reality. This is why Jesus turns the money tables over. He was one of us. He was saying... All the money changing, all the profit, all this gold, all this amazingness that's happening in the temple is corruption. There was serious corruption. And how do you how do you get how do you vote them out if there's a system where you're born into it? You can't get rid of them. You can't vote the bums out. So the rabbis are all they have a very complicated relationship with the temple. They send their money from Babylonia. They send their taxes. They send everything that needs to happen to keep the system going. They send money for sacrifices, right, because they can't offer them, but they can pay to have someone bring a goat on their behalf, right? So they're doing, they're participating in the system, but they're very critical of this system. So... When this happens, when does this happen? The destruction? 70. 70 CE. This goes away. What happened around the same time? The death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. Right? What was this? Close enough. Close enough, right? What, 33 or something? Right? So here we have Jesus who had become, it was starting, this idea that Jesus is tied to the idea of the Christ. Those ideas are starting to come together. Jesus of Nazareth, his teachings, and it's starting to come together with the other idea in the region of the risen Christ. When you get Jesus as the Christ, you get Christianity. But that wasn't really organized for a long time. Well, Neither was this. Right. But by seven, Neither was this. The Talmud is not codified until 600. Wow. Yeah, and by 70, you already yeah. have uh, two or three of the Gospels. Oh, really? Yeah. The Gospels were written by... Sorry. I thought they were later. No, no. The, the last Gospel was already that. written by 100. Is Christ a, uh, a synonym for a Messiah? Is that what... It's, I just don't know. It's complicated. Um, but Mashiach comes from us. Messiah comes from us. Mm-hmm. So that's different. Okay. Um, Christ is this idea that the that the king dies on behalf of the people, and then is risen again. And that's how you get your crops. You know, you, the king dies, and then is risen. And that, that's when spring happens, and rebirth, and renewal, and all of that. Um, and so this, I, and so then the idea of the Christ is already there. It's already in the region. It's been there forever. Think of the, think of Greece. Think of the half God, half person. You know, the, the redemptive figure. There's, there's a lot that goes on with this. It's really interesting. I, I, it's really interesting stuff. Um, so the idea of the Christ is already there. But then Jesus of Nazareth starts teaching, and starts teaching about end days and end times that we also have. Um, And for some, that includes the Messiah who's going to herald the coming of Judgment Day. So all of that eschatology, all of that end-time stuff, the Mashiach, the Messiah, is the one to go, it's here. God's coming. Get your act together. That's why you didn't marry. Right? That's where celibacy, that's what that's about. Because you don't have time for that. You, you can't be messing around with that. The end is here, people. The end, the end is upon us. That's eschatology. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's converted by John the Baptist to this eschatology. And so when that happens, and Jesus is talking about end times and getting ready for the end times, then you focus on Mashiach. You focus on Messiah, because Messiah is going to come let us know that this is happening. But what happens instead? Jesus gets dead. What do you do now? What do you do now? Now, um, he's gonna come again. 
There's going to be a second coming. This was just the dry rub. This was like the perfect. Because what was he going to do? Your guy's dead. And the end didn't happen. We're still, it's still Tuesday. Right? We still need groceries. And the cat has to be fed. Right? Nothing changed. And your guy dies. We, that's a problem. Right? So, so Jesus is the risen Christ and will come again and becomes Mashiach. That he was here to tell us, he was here to do what Messiah is supposed to do, to tell us that the end is going to come. And, right? Exactly. Happened? Yeah, but okay, whatever. Um, so was the word Christ used before? Because yes, I, I know very little about him, and I always just thought his name was Jesus Christ, not yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Christ. Yeah. But I thought that was his name. I know it's Jesus of Nazareth, but I sort of thought, I don't know. Right, it's not his name. It's so it's Jesus becomes so that word was in play yes. a long time before yes okay. that idea and that term was, was around you were saying today right I didn't know so, so this happens at, at year yeah. <laughs> this happens in 33 right and that starts to like like Richard said we've got some gospels going on around this time so they were born at the same time Christianity and rabbinic Judaism because now, until 70, you don't have Judaism. What do you have? Israelite cult religion. You had the growth of the ideas and the literature and the thinking and the moving away from the temple that's going to become Judaism. But let's not... Judaism is born in 70. Christianity is born about the same time. So we're actually, you know, we call it a daughter faith. It's not true. We're siblings. Judaism and Christianity are siblings. The parent religion is Israelite religion. So you see a lot of it preserved in Christianity. The sacrifice, like we said, purification, the priesthood, all of that is maintained. Those ideas when the temple falls, right, become part of this new business of Christianity and it is rejected by the rabbis who had really been rejecting it and pushing back against it since 586 BCE, the first destruction, destruction and the first dispersal. It's almost a different kind, it's almost a different path of reconstructing Judaism. Yes. Right? In other words, yes. Right? In other words, they you know they chose the the people who were rejected by the rabbis said, well, fine, we're going to incorporate what's left of the temple practice, and that's fine with us, and, you know, we're going to just go off in this direction, right? That's right. And just like you had the, as described in the Gospels, just like you have the antipathy between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you have the growing antipathy between the, the new church and the rabbi. Right, there's a lot going on at this time. There's a lot going on, and a lot of different sects, and a lot of different sects, <laughs> and a lot. Uh, there's probably a lot of the other two, but there's like there's a lot going on, and so there's a lot of competition for ideas and resources, and there's cross-pollinating, and it's, it's very exciting in some ways, but really messy in other ways. So these are both, rabbinic Judaism and Christianity are both reconstructions of ancient Israelite religion. Amy, would the Babylonian uh, rabbis embrace Christ? Did they think of him as sort of an ideological brother because he's rejecting the temple, he's rejecting the same thing they're rejecting? Um, you know, they probably would have agreed with a lot of what he said. The problem was he was so focused on eschatology that that was already, it was, he was already a fringe figure for them and they had their problems with, we had our own. Right? Have you been to Masada? Mm-hmm. Have you heard the story of Masada? Right. The zealots? Well, those are our guys who are also like pretty out there and talking about end times and the sons of light and the sons of darkness and the sons of light will prevail. It's like, right? Wacky stuff was happening at this time. So he was kind of fringe. The other thing is he was a real problem for the rabbis. Because? Because he was rabble-rousing. And he was... Ticking off Rome. But he was a problem for the priests, not for the Babylonian rabbis. He was a problem for the Jews. For the rabbis. 
For the rabbis. For the leaders of the ah. Jewish community. He's a problem. He keeps ticking off Rome. As a Jew. He's teaching as a Jew. You, right. We have to remember this. He's teaching as a Jew. Right. He's turning over those money tables as a Jew. And so when you start ticking off Rome, and you start getting everybody whipped up, right, about how it's so focused on materialism and right and, and all the stuff, even that the rabbis would agree, like that the corruption and whatever, then he also meant Rome. And who's Rome gonna take that out on? The Jews. If you got a bunch of Jews following this guy, which there were in a way, out of what the rabbis would criticize the temple for. But they had to be careful. And Jesus wasn't careful. And his followers weren't careful. They wanted it all changed. They were revolutionaries. That's a fabulous thing. Until Rome crushes you. So, so, so Jesus would have been an anarchist in a sense. Well, he wanted God's rule. Yeah. Well, he wanted the end of what the system was. Yes. He wanted to tear it down. Yes. And bring in a new... Yes. Based on God. That God was going to come. Be the leader. Be the ruler. The kingdom of heaven would be on earth. That was the vision. That was the dream. And he was a revolutionary. Which is great, unless you're living under a totalitarian regime that had an army like Rome did. Because what happened? He wasn't... The, the rabbis, I keep saying this, weren't wrong to be worried. Because this happens in 33. What happens 40 years later? Rome crushes Israel, crushes the Jews, blows up Jerusalem, and, and uh, exiles the entire population. 40 years later. It was right at, right, it was getting there. <laughs> Like, and there was so much activity going on that Rome was not happy with. It didn't take but 40 more years. And it got pushed to the limit. And Rome crushed ancient Israel. Forever. Right? Gone. Obliterated. I think you want to be careful not to rush into Jesus Christ because that's Paul's salesmanship as Christ. There is something of value of looking at Jesus in that period of time. And Reza Absalom's book, The Zealot, is worth looking at to look at that Jew who was part of a zealot movement. It's not until Paul, much later, brings it into but, Jesus. Right, but the idea of Christ and followers of that idea are already around. The, the, two, the two wind up merging, but it's already there and active at the time of Jesus. But surely, yes, those ideas don't come together right away. Right. Going back, just talking a bit back to the sacrificial practice of the temple Okay, so the basic idea of the of sacrifice, for whatever reason, is that it takes place at the temple. Yes. Okay. Which, in, in the context, since there is no temple yet, was would be at the at the at the Mishkan. Yes. Right? So particularly for well being, you could be having something great could be happening like no matter where you are. So isn't isn't this whole regime something that really only works as long as the people aren't dispersed at all? Yes. In the sense that they all have to be near the Mishkan. Yes. Right? Yes. So if they if they enter the land ultimately and you've got some some tribes up in the north and some tribes up in the south and ultimately the temple in the middle. You know, what do the people at the bottom of the south and the top of the north do when they're having a great day? Where are they supposed to make their sacrifice of well? You build something at you build done you, you build your and little call it good. You, you build your yeah. little you build your little temples wherever. So there were rival cult sites. Mm -hmm. For sure. Right? If you've seen the right. the, yeah. the ruins at, yeah. at Dan, right. then th there's an in, there's an impulse and has been in these really like these really geographically separated tribes. There's been an impulse to stay local. Who wants to slept to Jerusalem? Right? Um, and so yes, there's pushback always against centralization mm -hmm. of worship, but centralization was its own push 
to unify and unite those ends of the country, and it never really worked. Right, but when but when uh, we learn later, after in the in uh, beyond the after Deuteronomy, we you know God was not crazy about the idea of there being a king. Right. Right. And so, but the so the so, but how did um, where would God have come out on this problem of not not setting up outside temples? You know, what I mean? it depends who we're seeing God's will through. Okay. There are folks who are very wedded to God is just fine with my temple at Tel Dan. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And there are folks who are very vested in Jerusalem being the only place sacrifice can happen. So those would be like the priests. The priests presumably would say, hey, you've got to come here. And some in the government, like who who wants centralization of worship to empower Jerusalem as the capital Mm -hmm. to help the country Unify. unify. Has anything changed? No. <laughs> no. So if you're living in a spot at that time, and which is about as far away from Jerusalem, what, what do you do with sacrifices? You sell the first of your fruits, and you give the money from that sale to the temple. Which, which temple? The, the temple in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. So you have a system. Who, who's pushing the money into Jerusalem? Are there rabbis that are like literally taking the money from Spot and moving it to Jerusalem? There were functionaries of the temple were who took the money to the temple. The was huh? it, was it, were they working for the priests of the temple? The system was you had to give your first fruits to the temple, but I don't want to leave Spot. Right. I don't Three want to times a year, I have to. Three times a year, I have to appear you send in your before priest, God. You send but you in send your in your so money. To the it had to be that the, that the priest had a system to collect. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a huge. It was a huge complex. It was a huge administration. It was a huge system, right? And, I mean, next time I should bring in, you know, video recreations. It was huge, massive, and it was the central agency of the country. Right. So. That's the rabbi's criticism. What do we criticize, as Judith is saying, nothing's changed. What do we criticize Washington for? Corruption. What kind of corruption? What leads to corruption? Money. 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 Who was it on the radio I heard the other day saying, there's not, you know, check the cabinet, check Congress. There's not anybody there who's not wealthy. Right. Okay, so what is, right, so what, it becomes, so they're wealthy and they're corrupt and they're greedy. And that means they are not making decisions for our benefit. They're making sure they're, they're taken care of. They're taken care of and their system continues to function to take care of them and their cronies. That's our criticism of Washington. That's exactly what the rabbis felt about the temple. But do we want to see Washington obliterated? No, God forbid, a million times. We want it changed. That's what these young people are doing. Right? And the young, nobody's saying get rid of Congress. They may say get rid of the people sitting in Congress. But nobody's saying we want to blow it up. We, we want, well, some people, I guess, are saying they want a totalitarian regime because that's really common. I think they want the system. They just want different people. Um, I have a controversial question. Uh, Excellent. Um, if there is a third temple built, do you think this sacrificial system will start up again? No, no, and no. There isn't going to be a third temple built. How do you know that? Why would there be a third temple built? Well, it's, it is predicted. I mean, who would have thought Israel would become a nation after 2,000 years. All right, so it's not controversial. It's just not part of anybody's plan. Anybody's plan or... What would it it take for a third temple to happen? 
Uh, <laughs> who's going who's to support that? You think the rabbis are going to support that? Even the ultra-Orthodox? You think they're going to support sacrifice coming back? Are you kidding? They'd be out of a job. <laughs> they, who's going to support that? A third temple, not the religious authorities. So what you must be saying is if God comes and takes over and wants a third temple and has it built, is that what we're saying? Yeah. Th- then I have nothing really to say to that. <laughs> I mean, I hope that doesn't happen. I, seriously, like, I, th- there's no part of progressive Judaism that wants that to happen. And I certainly don't believe in a God who would do that or wants that. Judaism's in our hands. There, there is no Messiah. There is no end times. We create the Messianic age. We are responsible for the Messianic age. Not anybody else. And not God. But what do the ultra-Orthodox believe? It's still going on. This is still going on. This tension. On the one hand, we're, we're making the garments for the third temple. We're studying carefully the laws of sacrifice. Exactly when is it offered? Exactly how? Exactly how was the shovel made? Because we, we love it and we long for it and we long for Mashiach and we long for God and we long for the time where everything's going to be just and it's all going to get figured out and they'd be the first ones to say no way. No way. Their entire system of rabbinic Judaism would crumble. Now it wouldn't matter. What, why would you need to go to shul to like, to pray? You could just send your dove. And, and you're right. They, everything they love, everything they stand for, everything they teach about how we're supposed to behave, offering prayer on the altar of the heart, all of that would be obliterated, right? So, on the one hand, they long, you know, they say they long for it. On the other hand, they'd be the first to resist. Really, we're gonna have the, these yahoos in charge again? Really? Like, so on the one hand, they have the Levites washing the feet of the priests in, in the synagogue still. Right? You're a Kohen. You get the first Aliyah because you're a Kohen. So there's this yummy remembrance of the, uh, you know, the being a Kohen, being a Levite. Right? <clears throat> they have an attachment to it on the one hand. On the other hand, it's completely anathema to everything else they teach. Right? That it's about how we behave. It's not about, you know money or sacrifice or right so so that tension is still there is there anything in josephus who was here at this time it must have been a phenomenal experience to record what was going on we have writings oh yeah yeah it's it's referenced a lot right because that's that's one of the only ways we know because that because we have nothing extra biblical otherwise right we we need to rely on folks who were eyewitnesses um, to this stuff. And, and I don't want to overstate the case, as I did earlier. I'm going to get some nasty emails. Um, I don't want to overstate that Christianity is a form of Judaism. I'm not... I'm, I, I don't mean to overstate that. Like, it's a different religion. It's got different tenets that we have absolutely no connection to, right, in terms of um, our proclivities, our spiritual longings and proclivities and understanding. So I don't mean to overstate the case. I just meant to say we, we too often see Christianity as a derivative of our religious tradition and we don't get it that, that, that it's born at the same time that rabbinic Judaism is born, right? that they're actually siblings. I'm looking at contributions to the synagogue as sacrifice. So for many people I think it is. For many people it's the way we continue to do shlamim. When something happens good, let's sponsor a program at KI. Right. Like, you know, and if somebody dies, how do we, how do we lean into that and have their memory stay active and part of the community? We put up a plaque on the wall. We give money to the shul and in their memory, or we fund a program and there, you know, it's. So it's a direct descendant of. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the instinct is still there. Yes. We still want to give to the communal enterprise in order to draw closer to the divine. I think that's universally true, that every human culture is looking, every religion is looking for a way to do that. And one of them for us is to give to the communal Jewish institution, right? So, Amy, regardless of your viewpoint on the God figure, looking at this as, as a psychological phenomenon that has gone on for these thousands of years, 
is a very rich analysis of the growth and development of changing Judaism. How the simple people in the desert, well, simple in the sense that they didn't have technology, they didn't have conveniences and so forth. People wandering in the desert formed a communal uh, ethic that has survived all this time. And I think the psychology of it is so powerful, as well as the functioning uh, structure of it. Yeah. It, you know, this group of people created something that still speaks to us and that is reconstructable. Right? right? All, all <laughs> that we still like have any relationship to this text which I was not going to stay with, frankly, this morning. I brought a bunch of other stuff to do. Um, that we have this much to talk about about it, right, is, is because it's reconstructable. And the rabbis did that beautifully. That's how we're still here. And it doesn't depend on a God concept, really. Uh, in many ways, there's so many Jews who don't believe in God, who are a very vital part of our community and our, our belief system. Now, how much attachment they have to this, I don't know. Yeah. Right, but but definitely the ethos of giving, for instance, is one that has stayed with our people, right? Regardless of whether one is observant or religious or spiritual or just Jewish or whatever that means, um, and right, like secular, like it, the ethos of giving has stayed really strong, like with our people. Um, and so on, on, it's it's interesting. On the one hand, yes. This ragtag group of Erev Rav, a mixed multitude of made up of who knows what, right? Contributed ideas that have endured, creating a culture and a people who have impacted the world hugely outside of our number, right? We are less than two tenths of a percent of the world's population. Less than two tenths of a percent. And we make so much noise. So we're the one percent. We're we're the one percent. Not even one percent, right? So we um, we make a lot of noise. So it's it's disproportionate to our numbers. The influence that these ideas That's have had. Twain's big statement on the Jews. On the other hand, we're just a regular group of folk who evolved. Who have not? And and for a lot of us, was there a desert group? Maybe. But what we know is we emerged out of Canaanites, right? So we, it was an evolution, and we continue to evolve. And, and Reconstructionists argue that's our survival, is evolution of these ideas. The reason when this happened in 70 that we weren't obliterated as a people, because how does, who, who asked it, how does this survive in exile? How does it survive in exile? You read it. That's how it survives. It survives in the word, in the book. We are the people of the book. So if you keep reading about Zebach Shlamim, and then you reconstruct the idea in practice, that now we're going to give a Shlamim through prayer. So you, you, you keep reading the original, and you reconstruct it in practice in a way that keeps you doing stuff related to it. That's how you survive. That's how we made it, was the evolution of these ideas. And Reconstructionism is proud of that. Mordecai Kaplan called us an evolving religious civilization, that we leave ideas behind in terms of practice, but we bring them forward in terms of reconstructing their meaning. Right? Which is why we quit longing for a Messiah. We don't want a third temple. That's not Reconstructionist. Reconstructionists do not believe in a God who's going to... There is no supernatural God in Reconstructionism. No such thing. It is a transnatural God. It is not a supernatural God. So there isn't in Reconstructionism a God who can come and do the stuff for us and make it happen. There's only us relying on our relationship to whatever it is we understand the divine to be, drawing that through us, that's going to make Yemei HaMashiach. It's going to make the Messianic age, right? So we, it, so Kaplan said we evolved past this idea of sacrifice. And yes, we can reconstructed it to be about prayer and offering prayer on the altar of the heart, but, but it's metaphorical. And we own that. We, we, and we're proud of that. And that's how we've survived is that we've continued to do that.
any that is not an overstatement, but is your point of view to say that contemporary Judaism as we see it today could not have existed if the temples weren't first destroyed, forcing the diaspora, Correct. forcing a change in practice, Correct. and giving birth to the rabbinic. Correct. That's right. We, we wouldn't have... We would have died out. We would have just... Well, had the temple continued, who knows what would have happened, but we would not have had Judaism. Yeah, then, right. As we know it, we you know... We to get to Babylon in order not to make sacrifices... Correct. ...in the book. Correct. Yeah. Yes, we had to have the Babylonian exile in order to leave that system and develop something else, else in relation to it. Yes. And so, and so when we call the Chorban, the destruction... You know, the most horrible thing. I, I had this experience at camp where we were the ninth of Av. We, Tisha B'Av, we, we, you don't celebrate Tisha B'Av. You commemorate. When we commemorated the destruction of the temple, and they do this very powerful program with the kids. It's really, really powerful. I was sobbing by the end of it. Um, but I said to the director of the camp, I said to Isaac, I said, I have, I have a complicated relationship to making the, the, the Chorban be the focus of so much grief be- because without the Chorban we wouldn't be here and so do I, am I happy that they blew up the temple? No. Am I happy that they slaughtered a bunch of Jews? No. But, but to make that the focus of all of our mourning I'm like I have a very complicated relationship to that idea. Because there's some gratitude. Because I have some Gratitude that we are not, we don't have a temple system. I don't want one. I'm happy it's gone. Am I happy how it got gone? No, right? So it's a, but it was just interesting that I realized that it's that ingrained in me as a progressive Jew that the Horban is not the worst thing that happened to the Jewish people. It's one of the best things that happened in a weird kind of twisted way yeah. to the Jewish it people. It, it forced a change, right? Yeah. That, that what was necessary, that was that I'm grateful for in a complicated, twisted sort of well, way. Well, allowed us to survive. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Sheldon? Why don't we rush to the Western Wall when we go to Jerusalem? Aha. Aha. It is a very, very good question. Why do we focus so much on the Western Wall if we are liberal Jews who don't have an attachment to the temple. So um, I've said this many times in this room. Every time I go to Israel, I have the same conversation with myself on the plaza. Do I go to the wall or do I not? Do I go to the wall or do I not? Some years I go down and touch it and do what everybody does. And many years I do not for that exact reason. It's like a... Why there, like Dafka? So the answer, the, the answer I can give you from my perspective anyway, like why am I drawn if I'm someone who doesn't want the system, is that it's been the focal point of our people's longing and yearning, A, for our homeland. Right? We turn and face Jerusalem three times a day. I grew up praying three times a day. We face Jerusalem. right? So it's been the, the center of longing for our people and the focus of our holiness attention for so long that it maintains and retains that power and that that's the only structural piece left of that focal point it's a symbol it's a symbol and and it's imbued with the longing of our people and that's what i touch when i go there not the retaining wall of the temple does that make sense i touch the stones that our people have touched and some risk their lives to get there to touch those stones. It's that that, that moves me deeply, not that it's the retaining all of the temple. But isn't it also fair to say that for many people who go to the wall, it's probably for a minority for whom it has actual religious significance. And a lot of people go to the wall because they're making a political statement. Yes. In the sense of we can. Yes. You know, we're, we, we, now, we now are in a place where we have, we, we have it, we can do it, and we don't care who knows it. We're proud. Absolutely. Be- because Israel is, in that sense, a really complicated 
set of things. It's not just religious. It's also political. It's also peoplehood. It's also nationhood. It's also like we're independence. It's also we're still here. Screw you, world. We're still right. There's so much that Israel is that that's why it's such a mess. Do you think that's why when the Haredim are parading down to the wall? Sure. That's why the Haredim are in control. Is that what they're saying? They want to maintain control over that space. Are you kidding? It's not really religious as much as it's cultural. Ah, so let's get someone in here and we can have that discussion and we'll see who, 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 like who wins that because, because that's a debate. I agree it's not religious. It's actually political. And they're using their religious authority right, for it's control. Our it's our wall, and you'll have to do religion our way if you want to be at our wall. And But but they will argue, of course, it's religious. Right? So it's about who's, who's, you, who's deciding the terminology. Would you have the same ambivalence about the Holocaust? In terms of? In terms of it did some good. Um, I don't think the Holocaust did any good. It's never again. It was it created the. the uh, it did not create the state of Israel. Israel. No, it did not create Israel. That was already on the way to happening. People use it, then I I don't buy it. I, I, you know, did it strengthen our resolve? Okay, but the cost. The cost is unthinkable. So I, I do not feel ambivalence about the Holocaust. Nothing good came out of that. Nothing. Um, and that's, and that's also a political conversation, right? And so I don't say it lightly. I'm just saying, because I was taught that too. I was taught if not for the Shoah, there wouldn't be Israel. And then I got to study and learn that actually that was already well on the way to happening. Did it push some things? I'm sure. But again, the cost is unspeakable and unthinkable, and so, so I don't want to tie them, right? Like, I mean, but I, but I get that that's a thing that we do. And I think we do it to cope, right? I think we, I think we do it so that we can cope with the Holocaust. Because if nothing came out of it, how does the people live with that? How do you live with that kind of evil and destruction, right, and suffering, and so I think it's just, it's an impulse to say, but at least, right? But I, I, but I just don't buy it. Everything doesn't happen for the best. No. 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 It doesn't. And not everything happens for a reason. That's the other one that drives me bananas. It makes me crazy. It's spiritual junk food that everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. An eight-year-old is raped by her parents and left in the woods to die. I'm sorry. There's no reason for that. There are unspeakable, horrific things that happen in this world. There's no reason. So if you have, we've had this conversation a lot. If you've got a supernatural God who can stop those things, you have to deal with that. I don't. I don't have to deal with that. I can say there's no reason to it. Human beings are crazy, right? And sometimes we're damaged and we do terrible things and there's no, and there's no reason somebody dies of cancer. There's no, no reason for that. It's that we're physical beings that can get sick, right? Does that mean? All right, I, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna close in one second. But what what is it? It's just playing the devil's advocate. I'm thinking that maybe back historically the Babylonian um, diaspora was so horrendous and painful to them that they were speaking of it. So yes, we are speaking of the Holocaust yes, now. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes. So they continued studying this. It was horribly traumatic. Horribly traumatic for them. So how do they cope? They continue to study and yearn and long for this system that they... Maybe hundreds of years from now, the attitude may have changed and we would think that the Holocaust was a a means justifying the end. Right? So who knows? Who knows what our people's reaction 300 years from now is going to be looking back on stuff that we're still really close to. Kaplan said, I trust the Jewish people with that. Well, that's a huge thing to trust the Jewish people with that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like maybe we're living here long enough 300 years from now, maybe there's going to be a tree in every Jew's living room with, you know, Jewish stars on it right. for Hanukkah. Right. <laughs> okay. 
Right? That makes a lot of people super nervous. I don't care. I believe Kaplan. That if Jews decide they want a bush in their house in December with stars on it for Hanukkah, fine. We're too close to Christmas being a threat. And that's why we get all freaked out about it. Right? Um, 300 years from now, who knows? Maybe every American will have a bush with their family insignia on it in December. Like, who, who knows? But what, but we have to either trust or not trust the Jewish people with the evolution of Judaism. And I choose to trust the Jews. Well, you tell me, you answer that question. What's the other choice? Authoritarian. Uh, Ultra-Orthodoxy? The chief rabbi. That's the other instinct, that is, is preserve, conserve at all costs, even though even they evolve. Right? They have to, right, to survive. But they don't want to they don't want to talk about that. That that they evolve and make those decisions too about what they're gonna keep and what they're gonna get rid of. But they'll tell you like the only the only option is to resist at all costs assimilation of any kind. So that, and those are your two choices. Either you trust the Jewish people to assimilate Jewishly, and whatever that's going to mean, or you decide you're going to resist at all costs and you're going to focus on particularism as what's going to enable you to survive. And hopefully both versions will be around for a while, right? Because I'm hoping they'll stay in tension. Right? I think, I think it's a healthy tension. I, I don't want to see one of us go away. And the other be all triumphalist, right? And rewrite the history books. I, I think it's a healthy kind of thing we got. The, the, the grinding. Uh, yeah. From, for, for, ne- never mind. All right. I'm going to give you this to take home uh, because next Friday is Pesach. So I'm not here, uh, we're not here, the building's closed, it's Pesach. Um, so I want to give you something, uh, Torah study for Pesach. But the good news is the temple's closed on Pesach because the Jews are home observing the altar of their table. Bringing sacrifices to the temple. We, we're observing, right? It goes all the way back to here, what we're observing on Pesach at home. And it's, by the way, the holiday that most Jews, that the most Jews ever do. Um, like 90-something percent of Jews, even those who don't observe other things, observe some kind of Leila Seder, some kind of... Uh, Passover. So I just want to um, draw your attention on the back is this teaching from the Svadimet, which I, who I love. And you might not have known this, but if you look at the paragraph to the right, about the middle, every Jew. The back, the back, the teaching from the Svadimet, the paragraph of English on the right. Every Jew, yes, Anna. Every Jew has this inner place. Okay, okay. The gift from God. You can read it later if you can't follow right now. Our task is really to expand that point, to draw all our deeds to follow it. This is our job throughout the year for better or worse. But this holiday of Matzot is the time when the point itself is renewed, purified from any defilement. Therefore, it has to be guarded from any ferment or change on this holiday. It's a beautiful teaching. What is he saying? He's saying there's a point within each of us that is pure. And that on the holiday of Pesach, that point itself, that nikudah, is renewed. And that's why we can't have any fermentation right, around it. It has to be guarded from fermentation because fermentation is about being puffed up. It's about arrogance. It's about rising. It's about right, you know. Um, and so, so this Chagah Matzot, you should know. I want I want you to know on this holiday that your nekudah is going to be renewed. And that nekudah, that point, is the place the rest of the year that we are able to draw everything through. That changes everything we do from bad intention and changes it. We have the choice to pull everything through that point, that nikudah, and it changes it because it goes from a place of purity, right? So no matter how I start out, 
If I can draw every thought, every word, every action through that point, it will create only good, positive, wonderful things in the world. And the, the practice is how do we give ourselves half a second before we speak, before we act, to pull it through that point. Right, um, that's spiritual practice. That's the work. That's mindfulness that we're going to do uh, in a few minutes. Is to renew our contact and our awareness of that point, and renew our capability to have everything come through there. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website www.ourki.org